Okay, if you would, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, and we began a series on the book of John last week. And this will actually be the second installment in the series. Uh, and it's we're just now into chapter 1. We started last week in chapter 20, of course, uh, which John laid out for us in chapter 20, his purpose in writing his gospel. So that was the logical place to start. And we come here to John chapter 1 today. But before we begin to really get into the text, I want to ask some questions. And I want us to really think about something. The... the New Testament church, even up until this day, and maybe even more so in this day, we have been accused of exaggerating the person of Jesus Christ. Is that true? Have we made too much a big deal of Jesus Christ? Because after all, if you look through our confessions and our statement of faith and things like that, we consider him God incarnate. We consider him the second person of this Trinitarian Godhead. We say that he eternally existed, that he was both fully God and fully man, that he made propitiation for sins, that he ascended to heaven, is seated at the right hand of the Father as we speak, he is interceding for his church, and he has sent his Holy Spirit into his people to continue his work here upon the earth. And we further teach that he will return. And he will judge both the living and the dead according to the words that he spoke. So is that too big a deal? Is that too much? Many disagree with it. Many say, no, 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 Jesus wasn't pre-existent. He's just a man. He was a good man. He was a good teacher, they'll say. Uh, he was a good Jewish rabbi. Maybe even perfect, maybe even lived the ideal life, so much so that God approved, that God resurrected him, that God took him up to heaven. Uh, maybe that's what all that resurrection was about, but he, let's not make him out to be God. He never claimed to be God, is what many will say. And many will argue that we make too big a deal of Jesus Christ. But what we're going to see as John opens up his gospel, that the very first word that he uses to describe the Lord Jesus Christ is so profound and so provocative that when it is understood, it should silence all those voices that say that Jesus is anything less than our best statements of faith say. And when we explore the audience that the, the people that John was writing to and the purpose that he had in his gospel, and we realize that when he calls Jesus the word or the logos, we're going to see very clearly that we've really probably just scratched the surface of the significance of the big deal that is Jesus Christ. So last time as we looked at John's gospel, we looked at his purpose for it, found in John 20, verse 31, we saw an important link between the word of God and faith or believing, which is a key word in his gospel, and eternal life. And we see that then he lays out his gospel as a matter of life and death, eternal life and death. And so when we open to John chapter 1 and we begin to see this, the first of the many descriptions that he is going to call him is the Word of God or 
the logos is the Greek word. And the reason why I say the word a lot, and I want you familiar with the word logos, is because there's other words in Greek for a word. This particular one is very important. So we're going to begin by reading in John chapter 1, and we're just going to read selected verses. We're going to read verses 1 through 5, and I'm going to skip down and read verses 14 through 18, and then we'll get to those middle verses a little bit later. But if you would like to, and if you are able to, why don't you stand for the reading of those verses? And it will be an encouragement to you and a help to you, I'm sure, to be able to see this as well. Okay, here's what it says there. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So all three occurrences there is the word logos. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Skip down to verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Go ahead and be seated. And let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We ask you, Lord, now to accomplish with your word what you will. Make yourself known through it. Be glorified in it. We thank you and praise you for all that you're doing. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so there we have Jesus described by John as the word, the logos of God. And John, the first thing we need to understand is his audience. Who is this he's writing to? What's his occasion for writing this gospel? And we'll find that to be very enlightening when we get around to seeing what logos means. Well, Jesus' audience consisted of both Jews and Gentiles. He wrote late in the first century, and as, as being late in the first century, um, we are seeing that John was writing to a mixed congregation of Jews and Gentiles. Very early in the first century, as the gospel first began to spread, it was primarily Jews. But then, as many of the, much of the Jewish leadership rejected the message, and as much of the Jewish population was covered by the gospel message, it began to go more and more and more to the Gentiles. By the time John writes his gospel, the church is a majority Gentile. And so he has both these people in mind when he writes, and he was the last of the four Gospels to be written. The first three, called the Synoptics, because they're all very similar, really focused on the events. John focuses on the meaning of those events. John does much more interpretation than the other ones did. The others would say, this is what he did, this is you know what he did, this is what he taught, and they'd account what he taught. 
and didn't give a lot of internal commentary. John brings it all to us and interprets it for us. And what he intends to do is show us that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by us seeing that, that we would believe and have eternal life. And so he begins with this word logos. And what we're going to see is this word that he uses is provocative to both audiences. So we're going to have to have a little history here. So put on your thinking caps so you can come along with us and, and learn why this is significant. We'll go to the Jews first, as the gospel did. We'll go to the Jews first and what they understood or thought about the idea of logos. Well, logos, its most plain translation to our language is word. Uh, but it meant more than just a, an individual word as it is, that group of letters which means one particular thing. It referred to the idea of a message or a concept. The original ancient Greek root of this really meant to gather. So if you cross that concept with words, then the idea is it's, it's usually a group of words. It's usually a message or a concept. Well, to the Jews, when they came to translate their Hebrew Bible into Greek, used this in several key places. They used it in places like Psalm 33, verse 6, where it says this, it says, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. Well, that only makes sense because when you read Genesis chapter 1, which, by the way, John was speaking of when he started this because he said, in the beginning was the word, that those first words, in the beginning, that's exactly how the book of Genesis starts in the Greek. And so right away, he grabs the Jews' attention by saying, in the beginning, they're like, oh, I've heard this, was the word. Whoa, hold on. Well, what would they be thinking? They would be thinking this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, how did he do that? Verse 3, God said, let there be light. He spoke the things into existence in Genesis chapter 1. And so that became for them this concept as it's brought forth in Psalm 33, as we saw by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And they even expanded that to the idea that creation itself speaks. Psalm 19 that we read from earlier, the heavens declare the glories of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words, there's logos, to the end of the world. And then he has set a tent for the sun. So the Jews had this kind of concept of the logos of God being this creative force that he utilized to create everything. And look what he says in Isaiah 55. By the time we get to Isaiah, the idea is kind of expanding. And the Lord says this about accomplishing his will on the earth. He's telling in the book of Isaiah, Israel, all about, I'm bringing this nation Assyria to judge you. And then I'm going to bring a nation called Babylon to judge them and you and take you out to exile. But I'm going to bring you back and I'm going to make Jerusalem so great that someday all the nations will come to it. He's telling them all this, and how's he going to do it? He says this. He says, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. In the previous verse, he compares the word of God 
to rain and snow that comes down and it accomplishes its work in the plants to grow, right? And he says, that's how my word's going to be. It's going to be my logos that comes out of my mouth that's not going to come back to me empty. It's going to accomplish what I send it to do. And when you get that in mind and you read John chapter 1, you're like, wow, the logos did come and did accomplish and is accomplishing what God wants him to do. And so in Jewish thought, the logos had a parallel concept. And that parallel concept was Sophia, or wisdom, as it's called. And Sophia is an important concept because it is the wisdom of God. It is personified much like the word is personified. Let's look at this like Proverbs chapter 1, starting in verse 20. Wisdom cries aloud in the street, in the markets she raises her voice. So in the book of Proverbs, here in chapter 1, and in all of chapter 8, wisdom is seen as a person. And this wisdom comes, and this wisdom is important because the, you know, it speaks for God, it does things for God, and to those that receive this wisdom of God, they have life. And as you read the book of Proverbs, you see, okay, they had this concept. And a, a, a Jewish philosopher in the first century named Philo a lot of people look at his name and say, his name's Philo. No, they, it's Philo. Philo, in the first century, he, he was a Jewish philosopher, and he looked at some of the things that the Greeks thought about Logos, which we'll get to momentarily, and he said, yeah, that's exactly how we think about wisdom. And, and he began to use that term in the same way and began to bring in and, and say, and not adopt the Greek thinkings, but take those Greek thoughts and say, hey, this is, very similar to how we think and what we read in our scriptures. To give you an idea of what they were thinking in the first century when John wrote his gospel and people would be receiving this, we'll go to the Wisdom of Solomon, which is a book that's not in the Bible. It's not inspired scripture, but it kind of opens the door and gives us a peek of what people were thinking when Jesus came and when John wrote his gospel. And in the Wisdom of Solomon, look how it talks about the Word in uh, chapter 9 of that book. And let me see if I can get this over to you so that you can see it clearly. Let's see. This will take just a moment. Bear with me, but I do want you to see this. It's not, it's not in your Bible, so I have to bring in a, uh, another text for you. There. <laughs> and now you're like, that's too tiny, I can't possibly read it, and I will fix that for you. All right. So here we have uh, Solomon's prayer for wisdom in the book called Wisdom of Solomon. And he says, O God of my ancestors and Lord of mercy, who have made all things by your logos. And by your wisdom, see how they're in parallel there? Logos and wisdom. And by your wisdom have formed humankind to have dominion over the creatures you have made. And so here begins this prayer that's accounted. And this prayer has this concept that he made everything by his word. And it throws it in parallel to this idea of the uh, wisdom as we see it in the Proverbs. Later in that same book, in the chapter 18 of that book, it says this. Let me... Uh, 
Let me get this for you here. Like that trick, I can look over my shoulder and type. Yeah, I should have planned for this better. Uh, look what he says here. It says, your all-powerful word, look how it's personified, leaped from heaven, from the royal throne, into the midst of the land that was doomed, a stern warrior, carrying the sharp sword of your authentic command. See that idea of the sharp sword, the word of the mouth that comes from Jesus? That was an existing idea when John wrote the book of Revelation. He's carrying the sharp sword of your authentic command and stood and filled all things with death and touched heaven while standing on the earth. The word touched heaven while standing on the earth. Isn't that amazing to see? And isn't that profound to see? Not that this is inspired scripture, but that people were already thinking this way when John writes his gospel. And so when we come along and we read John chapter one and says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Now all of a sudden things start to make a little more sense for us. They had a concept of logos and this logos was what accomplished God's will upon the earth. And it was that that was pre-existent with God, that existed with him. It was a tool of his creation and a continuing tool of his administration to do what he wanted to do upon the earth. And so John comes along and he says what? He says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And not only that, but he attaches to it that, that re reference back to Genesis 1 in the beginning. What about the Greeks? Well, the Greeks had some ideas too. And the Greeks' ideas um, were a little harder to get our mind around just because they were so diverse in their thinking. But they were they had been deeply exploring science and mathematics for over six centuries by the time Christ came. They understood the basic elements of matter. They, they would name them out to you. You got the earth, the wind, the fire, and, and what's the other one? Earth, wind, fire, water. Thank you. And, and so they would say, yeah, those are the four elements. Everything's made out of that. And they, okay, that's fair enough. And, you know, it's things like us. We're kind of made of the earth, which is an interesting parallel to the truth. And... They had this idea of matter, but their question was that their philosophers wrestled with was, yeah, but what organizes the matter? Because clearly, I mean, while we're made of matter, we have a whole bunch of water in us and we have some earth in us and we have air that goes back and forth from our mouth. Okay. All those things are, are here and present, but nevertheless, I'm clearly more than those things. And they understood there's something more about this. There's something that organizes these things. There's something behind all this. There's a purpose or a logic of its arrangement. And Heraclitus was the first to use the word logos about this concept about 600 BC. From that Greek word, we get our word logic. From that Greek word, we get all our ologies, biology and theology and all those that Logi on the end of it is from this word logos, meaning knowledge. And so it has very broad reasoning. Logic, of course, means, you know, reasoning. 
And then some liken this logos, whatever it is that's behind everything, that organizes everything, they thought it was kind of a pantheistic force of some kind. Some believed that there was along with the matter very small particles of logos driving them. And you all thought George Lucas was creative in Star Wars. He stole that idea from over 2,500 years ago. There's nothing new under the sun. And some of them, none of them thought that this Logos, however, was a personal God. None of them dreamed that this Logos would ever become flesh. And the reason for that is the Greeks had kind of this underlying idea that spirit and flesh were separate deals, that spirit was all good, flesh was all bad, flesh was contaminated. So spirit and flesh, there was this, this great dichotomy, this great problem between the two. Now, where did that idea come from? Well, think about it. The person you know you ought to be is kind of this abstract thing, right? In your heart, you know the person you ought to be, and yet there's the person you are, and they're never quite the same. And they saw this very clearly. They had common human experience like we do. They knew there were principles that they weren't living up to. So they thought, okay, those things are spiritual. That's, that's, you know, that's ephemeral. That's something that you can't touch, that you can't taste. But this, that you can touch and taste and everything else, contaminated somehow with sin. And so their idea, well, this uh, logos is going to become flesh, that's radical. That's crazy talk to the Jews. And then they had another concept, which was, which was this concept of arche. And to take you back to the, uh, back to the scriptures here in John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning, the word translated as beginning is arche. And the Greeks also had a concept of arche, which was similar to logos in that they would use this to speak of that which came before or that which it lies behind current events, the prime mover, the thing in the background, the primary principle, as it were. And so there's some parallels there. So John, in order to get the Greeks' attention, he starts off his gospel in the Arche was the Logos. And he's got their attention now. They're like, hey, these Christians aren't as crazy as I thought they were. Those are concepts that we already have and we already know and we kind of understand. So what John does is he reaches into the Jewish world and reaches into the Greek world and he grabs hold of something that's already there, thoughts they're already having, he brings it in and he makes a few tweaks. The Bible does this all the time. And here's how you know when the Bible does it because some non-believer will go, hey, the Logos idea wasn't John's, he stole that from the Greeks. And they'll say, see, the Bible's not original. It's not the inspired word of God. They're just borrowing other ideas. No, God knew that people were thinking these things. In fact, he probably inspired them to think these things so that he could come along, correct them, and show them the truth by his servant, John. So let's summarize some of the similarities that they have and some of the differences that they have. And this is important. The similarities are very simply this. Jesus Christ is pre-existent. Jesus Christ is pre-existent. We see that in John 
1, 1, but we also see it in John 8, 58, where Jesus says, and they were going to stone him for saying it. Don't ever miss that. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Well, now Abraham was over a thousand years before Christ, almost 2,000 years before Christ. He says, before Abraham was, I am. And they're going to stone him for it because he says, I am in a provocative way that we'll get to later in the series. In John chapter 17, as he prays to the father, the night he's going to be arrested, he prays to the father on our behalf and he says this. He says, now, father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So John not only suggests in chapter one that he's preexistent, he backs it up a couple times with Jesus' own words. And so this was a concept of the Logos, is that this was something that was preexistent. This was something that went before. Jesus Christ is also the cause of everything. And if we look closely uh, in John chapter one, verses one to three, it says, all things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. If we go to 1 Corinthians 8, 6, Paul says this, Yet for us there is one God the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. And a strong parallel to John's thoughts here is in Hebrews chapter 1, as that is introduced, he says, long ago, which is similar to in the beginning, right? At many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets and uh, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So you see the clear testimony of scripture that is in parallel to the things that were people were already thinking in the first century was that this logos is preexistent, that the logos is the cause of everything, that the logos is even the purpose of everything. And look in uh, Colossians chapter one, by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, that, so that includes all the angelic realm, all the other spiritual beings, all things were created through him and for him. Very important preposition there, that he is the purpose behind all these things, that he's the reason all these things exist. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So these parallels is the idea that Jesus is preexistent, that he's the cause of everything, and that indeed um, he is the purpose of everything. So those are very important parallels, but there's some very important uh, differences too. The very important differences are this, and they are summarized in chapter 1, verse 14. And this is radically different than anything that was believed at the time. Let me get you there. John chapter 1, verse 14 says uh, this, The Word became flesh, the Logos became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory as of the only Father, Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So the true Logos became flesh. He's not only a person that can be spoken of with personal pronouns, it can be spoken of as he and someone who has a will and someone who has 
purpose, but it is a person that became flesh. In verse 18, he says, no one has ever seen God. He says that clearly. No one's ever seen God. The only God who's at the Father's side, he has made him known. It's made him know how? By actually coming here and revealing himself to us. So this was inconceivable to the Jews, that this was a person and that it becomes flesh. But then, because what this would do is effectively, because Yahweh is credited in the Old Testament with all that creation, with all that sending out, with all that doing, and all those things. And they say, if we believe that this is a person distinct from from God the Father, then that puts another Yahweh in heaven. And the early Christians said, you're right. Go read Daniel chapter 7, where we see two Yahwehs in heaven. The Father and the Son both. And this is inconceivable to the Greeks because as we explained, to them, spirit and flesh were pretty much incompatible. And this is why we, we see the crucifixion to the Jews and the Greeks both as kind of a punchline. Because that's kind of a punchline like, no, 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 Logos couldn't become flesh and, and that, then he was crucified. What? He was crucified? This is why Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20 to 25 here. He talks about contrast the wisdom of God Sophia, parallel to the Logos, versus the wisdom of the world. And he says, For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ, crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly or foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and look, the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. You see what John has done here? He has taken things in their world and brought them into view and placed them before them. Let's talk about this Logos. The Logos became flesh and dwelt among us. And like, whoa, what? So now he's got their attentions, both the Jew and the Greek. They're going to read chapter one. They're not going to be able to stop reading because they're going to be like, whoa, we have for centuries been kind of trying to get our mind around this abstract idea. We know there's something there. We don't really know what it is. Maybe this will fill in the blanks. And so they read chapter one. They're like, yeah, 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 that's what we're looking for. We want the answer to that. We want to know what this logos really is. What's the true nature of it? And John does his gospel and all that Jesus teaches and the miracles he performs and the things that he does and his crucifixion and burial and resurrection is the word of God. That's the Logos. And now some people will say, no, 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 you've read, you need to be careful, brother, you've read way too much Greek philosophy into this, you've read way too much uh, Jewish philosophy into this, and you've really gone off the rails on this Logos thing. Have I? 
is what I've just reviewed, what John meant when he used the term in chapter 1. Let's let John tell us from his words in the gospel here. In John chapter 5, we have an extended teaching of Jesus, and it concerns his relationship with the Father and what it is that he came to do. And look at some of the highlights of that teaching. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. Does it sound like the concept of logos? Verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. See, he's clearly the sent agent that the Jews thought that the Logos was. It was the sent, but they thought it was a force. They thought it was just a personification of what God was doing. But no, 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 it's actual. And finally, at the end of that, in verses 38 to 40, he said, You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. He says, those scriptures, that's all about me. And what they would have defined as logos when he came was... That's what God uses to do. That's this agent of force. That's what brings the word of God. That's what does all these things and created everything and sustains everything. And he comes, he says, that's me. And in John 17, when he's praying for us, look what he says right after the one we looked at before. He says, I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. They've kept your logos. They've embraced it. See, the thoughts of God are truly his own. The thoughts of God are something that are above and beyond anything that we can possibly understand. The thoughts of God are so profound as to, to be indistinguishable to us from from anything else. The Lord said, my ways are above your ways, says the Lord. And we say, amen. And this was where the Greeks were. It's like, you know, if there is this logos or whatever, we're not going to be able to really understand it. We're not going to be able to comprehend it. But let me tell you something about the Lord. When he chooses to reveal those thoughts to mankind, he does it through the Lagos, Jesus Christ. Look what it says in Hebrews chapter 1. We looked at this already, but it's, bare, it's, it's worth looking at again. Long ago, at many times, many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things through whom also he created the world. Now look at this in verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The idea that he's the radiance of the glory of God is the idea that he is to the sun everything that shines out. 
When we look up in the sky, do we see the sun or do we just see its radiance? We see its radiance. We don't see the sun. We can't see the sun. It's too bright. But we see the effect of it. We see that which, which goes out from it. And the same is true of Jesus Christ, according to the author of the Hebrews here. And it uses another one here too, the exact imprint of his nature. No, he's not the original, but he's everything the original wants us to know about. So every thought of God and everything that can be known about God is revealed through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why all these other religions and all these other philosophies and everything, they will always fall short. And this is when we see the relevance of the Lagos. I don't want you to leave without totally understanding the relevance of what we've learned here today because the relevance is profound. Let's get to that just a moment here. Um, the relevance is simply this. We need to make a bigger deal of Jesus Christ. Remember, I began with questions. You know, do we make too big a deal? Is it, are, I've really gone off the rails with these critics of the Christian faith, right? To say, you know, Jesus wasn't all that. I mean, he was great, but it, it's really God we've got to focus on. Here's the truth of the matter. All that a human being has ever imagined that could be about the nature of reality, nature of God, these philosophical systems and these religions that they create, it all has these enormous holes in it, things that they don't understand. And when you talk to them for five minutes, you can find them so easily because you can, once you know the truth, you can look at their worldview and their understanding and say, okay, but, but how this? And how that? Yeah. Like, think about, let's just go to something that's, that's commonplace probably for all of us. We've seen the Star Wars movies. That's kind of this pantheism. We saw it had its roots in some of these Greek philosophies and, and other world religions as well. And you ever notice they talk about the force. It's just, oh, it's just this force. Ah, oh, it's in everything. You know, it's in the tree, it's in the rock, it's in me and you, and it's all the same. And, and yet it seems to be leading us to go do this. Well, how does something that's impersonal, that just is, that is there to be manipulated by us, to direct, or for that matter, even to have an opinion? Aren't you saying it's a person? By saying it's directing us, it's leading us, I feel led to do this. Well, who leads you but people? So they have this massive hole, and we go, oh, no, that's the Lagos. See, the reason why we can be led of God is because God is a person. Actually, he's three persons in triunity. And the second person came down, showed us the truth. And we can know the truth, and that truth will set us free. Modern naturalism has massive holes in it. Naturalism is just the idea that matter and what is here and the principle, you know, uh, physics of the universe and everything can explain absolutely everything that happens. Oh, yeah? You saw that tragedy last week? 
and the naturalist will go, yeah, I saw that. It's a terrible thing. Say that that was bad. And they go, yeah, that was bad. And go, why was it bad? By what authority are you pronouncing that as bad? Do you see the massive gaping hole in their philosophical structure is they have no basis for morality. And we say, no, no, no. I can tell you why it's bad. Because the one who made everything says it was bad. This new age enlightenment that people talk about, you know, it's kind of the, the Oprah Winfrey kind of religion, you know, that, that the universe is there and there's these principles that you can take advantage of and, and you can name it and claim it and you can have the life you want just through good thinking and good philosophy and everything else. Okay, how did life come to be? How did life come into existence? How did it get here? Science has no answer for that. Did you know science has no answer for that? How non-living stuff became living stuff? And yet they'll say, well, I believe in science. I believe in evolution. And you're like, okay, there's, you've got a problem. You've got this big gaping hole in your understanding of reality. The same is true of of many other, and in fact, all the other religions and all the other philosophical systems, there are holes in them. And when we know the truth and we know Jesus Christ, we understand him as the Logos, we can begin to fill those holes in for people. And you say, yes, you're right, that was a bad thing. But can you explain why? And if not, can I explain why? Since Jesus Christ is the Logos of God, it means he's the only way to know God. And John's going to make that very clear as we go through the rest of the gospel. The offer stands, therefore, to know him, meet him in the word. And the problem is when we pick up the Bible, we, we think of it as the Bible. We think of it as a book with words in it. But do you realize that what John has done here by ascribing to Jesus this title, Logos, the word of God, is when we open up the Bible and we open it to read it and we look in its pages, we are spending time with Jesus himself. Might it make it easier to find time for your Bible reading if you really thought about it as just hanging out with Jesus? I'm going to open the Bible, hang out with him. How much better is that? Because no one has time to read a book. But we'll make time with our sovereign creator. So all that can be known about him has been made manifest in, in Jesus. And from John's perspective, the, the reason for the universe, the eternal principle, the prime mover, the creator and purpose of all creation reclined at the table with him. And I think the most profound thing about John, uh, about Jesus, is the fact that Jesus loved him. And he put up with him, his presumption to want to be at his right hand, bringing his mom along to kind of make the case. James and John, can they be at your right and your left hand? Jesus put up with that because he loved John. Jesus put up with when they were in Samaria and people weren't receiving Jesus' teaching. John and James are like, can we call down fire on them? Jesus like, you just don't get it but he continued to walk with him and he loved him. The word of God, therefore, is not there to learn facts about him. It's not there to memorize doctrines about him and those are helpful, but it's to engage him personally. 
because he is a person and he showed it when he came in the flesh. And we all have struggles and everyone around us has struggles. And you know what we need for those struggles is we need a personal, real relationship with the creator himself, the one who designed us, the one because of his design in us, they are troubles. Because when sin meets truth, there's trouble. And when we want to know what's really gone on in our lives, what's really happened to us, there it is. And therefore, what we need is the logos of God. We need him in person to minister to our needs. He fills the hole. He fills the gaps. He answers the question of what's behind all this. Why is this happening the way it has happened? Where is this all leading? It's all found in Jesus Christ, the Logos God. So let's go forth with this answer to all who have questions, and they all have questions. The Logos of God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you and praise you for your ministry through your servant John. Most importantly, the ministry of Jesus Christ as he came in the flesh and dwelt among us. Lord, I pray this day that as he is the creator, as he's the sustainer, as he is the judge and he is the author of eternal life, that he is the author and finisher of our faith, as the scriptures say, I pray, Lord, that each of us leaves here today making a bigger deal about Jesus Christ. Will you please stretch our minds to make more room for him, to increase our understanding of him, and therefore our commitment to him? I pray, Lord, that you will be known and glorified through the words that we have read today, and I pray that as we read further, that we are even more enlightened because of this foundation that we have, that it is all about Jesus Christ, the purpose behind everything, the prime mover of our universe, the one through whom and for whom and to whom all things exist. May we worship him in spirit and in truth. May we be an answer to those who are hurting around us and those who are lost. And may we have the compassion Jesus had to open our mouths. And may we have the wisdom of God himself upon our lips as we share the gospel of truth and we bring to somebody the logos, the truth that they need. We pray, Lord, this day for your equipping and your comfort and your strength. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.